The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Complementary Actions All Around, Lowering Cardiometabolic Risks While Achieving Glycemic Targets with GLP-1 RAs. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AZF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. The incretin-based therapies, DPP-4 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists, share a common uh, leveraging of the GLP-1 system. DPP-4 inhibitors provide for modest increases in GLP-1 levels, about twofold, whereas the GLP-1 receptor agonists increase uh, activity about tenfold. Both of them cover uh, the stimulation of insulin secretion and, as a result, uh, improve plasma glucose. Um, but as you get to the higher pharmacologic levels of GLP-1 with the agonist, uh, you do get one adverse effect, the nausea, uh, most commonly sometimes vomiting, diarrhea, or abdominal pain, but you also get the additional benefit on glucose and substantive uh, weight loss, which isn't really a feature of DPP-4 inhibitors. So they're in the same system, but very different therapies. GLP-1 receptor agonists have broad metabolic effects. Uh, we've touched on it a bit, uh, but there are a number of benefits, uh, particularly in the cardiovascular system, uh, which result in improved myocyte survival in the setting of injury and cardioprotection that played out in the cardiovascular outcome trials uh, that these mechanisms potentially were very important. When you look at the American Diabetes Association recommendations for how to manage hyperglycemia in patients with type 2 diabetes, the general recommendation is that you start with lifestyle intervention, diabetes self-management education and support, and generally metformin therapy. But very importantly, the first question that we address is does the patient have atherosclerotic uh, cardiovascular disease or are they at high risk, and do they have heart failure or chronic kidney disease? Because there, there's a compelling use to the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists um, or, uh, or SGLT2 inhibitors. And when we look more specifically uh, at that guidance, the first thing to recognize is that the compelling indications for GLP-1 receptor agonists um, is independent of baseline A1C, independent of the individualized A1C target, and independent of metformin use. So in a way, it's first-line therapy for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease. And secondly, it can be used in combination therapy uh, in, uh, in patients that are treated with an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, as additional therapy as needed, but in the setting of chronic kidney disease without albuminuria, um, it's a reasonable choice. Um, and in patients who do not tolerate an SGLT2 inhibitor or contraindicated because of an EGFR less than uh, 30, uh, the GLP-1 receptor agonist is a, uh, is a suggested choice. So where should we be considering using a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, very specifically? So GLP-1 receptor agonists may be the better choice where MACE, or major adverse cardiovascular events, is the gravest threat where atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease pr uh, predominates, or when more A1C reduction is needed or weight loss is a, is a high priority. On the other hand, SGLT2 inhibitors 
is clearly the better choice if heart failure or chronic kidney disease, particularly with advanced albuminuria, is the biggest issue. When you look at the indications, they're all indicated for glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes. Uh, liraglutide and exenatide once weekly additionally have indications for use in uh, children uh, with type 2 diabetes. Uh, Dilaglutide, liraglutide, and semaglutide have indications for reducing the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events in patients with established cardiovascular disease um, and reducing the risk of uh, MACE in patients uh, with cardiovascular risk factors is uh, only indicated with dilaglutide uh, currently. An important consideration is when you need that additional therapy where you're starting to think about adding insulin, the American Diabetes Association recommends the use of a GLP-1 receptor agonist in most patients prior to insulin. The reason for that is you get similar glycemic benefit, but you do so without the risk of hypoglycemia and with weight loss instead of weight gain and the cardiovascular benefits in patients where that's uh, important. And now it's also nice that uh, there is an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, uh, also available uh, that seems to have similar efficacy to the most effective injected GLP-1 receptor agonists. So the American Diabetes Association suggests that there's a compelling indication for the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists or SGLT2 inhibitors in patients that have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or are at high risk, or they have heart failure or chronic kidney disease. In the patients with atherosclerotic uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, in general, GLP-1 receptor agonists are, are uh, mentioned first. Uh, they have a slightly stronger uh, track record with regards to preventing these atherosclerotic cardiovascular uh, events. Um, and uh, they are also included in the chronic kidney disease algorithm. Importantly, when weight gain and minimizing that possibility or promoting weight loss is really the focus, the recommendation is to use a GLP-1 receptor agonist with good efficacy for weight loss. And arguably the best weight loss drugs that are available now are those GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, when we look at the GLP-1 receptor agonists as a class, there are clear benefits on uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, MI, stroke, and cardiovascular death. Uh, there is some differences in the clinical trial results. So some trials had, uh, had individually statistically significant results and some didn't. Uh, but as a class, about a 14% reduction on that uh, endpoint. With regards to cardiovascular death, Again, some individual differences, uh, but with regards to the meta-analysis, a hazard ratio of 0.87 or a 13% reduction uh, in, uh, in cardiovascular death. When we look across the classes, there are differences with regards to the efficacy, particularly around weight loss, uh, but also for hemoglobin A1C uh, for the different agents and the different doses. Um, and in general, the most powerful of the agents, particularly with regards to weight loss, uh, is semaglutide, uh, one milligram once weekly, and the, uh, the dose that's under review at the FDA, uh, semaglutide, uh, two milligrams uh, once weekly, uh, may be available soon. When we look at kidney outcomes, 
uh, in the meta-analyses of the GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, cardiovascular trials. In the, in the meta-analysis, there's a statistically significant 21% reduction in a composite kidney outcome of, that includes macroalbuminuria, doubling of serum creatinine, or at least a 40% decline in EGFR, kidney replacement therapy, death due to kidney disease. Um, and uh, perhaps more importantly, when we look at worsening of kidney function, in some trials, uh, there are uh, more clear benefits. In the meta-analysis, uh, suggestion of a 14% benefit, but that just misses statistical significance uh, for the worsening of kidney function. Based on renal status, there are differences in the dosing recommendations uh, in the prescribing information for each of the agents. And in general, the Exendin four based therapies, Exenatide in the twice a day or once weekly formulation, and Lixisenatide is cleared renally, and so there are restrictions to their use in patients with diminished uh, creatinine clearance or EGFR. In the GLP-1-based uh, uh, therapies, liraglutide, dilaglutide, and semaglutide, uh, there is uh, labeling around the possibility of dehydration in the setting of nausea or vomiting and how that could impact uh, people with advanced chronic kidney disease, uh, but no contraindication uh, for use based on uh, EGFR. So this is an interesting case to discuss on two parameters. One is to remind ourselves what's going on with pioglitazone, um, and also about this coronary artery calcium scoring uh, and the use of CRP as screening tests. You know, there is a literature, particularly in, uh, in the cardiology literature, about using these additional screening tests to help people with borderline risk based on standard risk assessments uh, um, to determine whether they're really higher risk than they seem. And in that setting, I do think there is some utility uh, to these coronary artery calcium score systems uh, as well as the use of uh, CRP. But in general, the American Diabetes Association doesn't recommend uh, the use of these additional screenings. They recommend the use of electrocardiograms and classic risk factor assessments and generally posit that everybody with diabetes is at high risk and should be receiving intensive risk factor management. Um, so the benefits, risks, and costs in this patient population is kind of controversial, and this particular case is pretty high risk based on their family history and other standard uh, risk markers. But when we talk about how the ADA um, talks about what is a high-risk patient with for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, it really is fairly broad uh, language. So it could be the, the classic uh, entry criteria to the clinical trials where benefits were shown, which included things like 50% lesions on an angiogram or a stress imaging study with evidence of ischemia, um, but also uh, just multiple risk factors and, uh, and an estimation of, uh, of cardiovascular risk that's high. Um, and in that setting, the recommendation is to optimize guideline-directed medical therapy and to use either a GLP-1 receptor agonist or SGLT2 inhibitor. So in the construct of how to reduce diabetes complications, there's a foundation of lifestyle modification and diabetes education, and built on that, glycemic management, blood pressure management, lipid management, very importantly, 
in patients at high risk, particularly high risk for heart disease or kidney disease, using these agents with particular cardiovascular and kidney benefits, namely the GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. Now, with regards to the mechanism, how is it that GLP-1 receptor agonists prevent these cardiovascular uh, events? There's a lot of data from animal models suggesting that, as an example, inflammation is important in general uh, with regards to the mechanism of GLP-1 receptor agonists, but also things like improving plaque stability and reducing smooth muscle pro proliferation. Lots of animal studies with different mechanisms suggested in humans, we finally, just at the end of last year, got a series of papers looking at a study called the Lyra Flame study where people were randomized to liraglutide or placebo. They had these sophisticated imaging techniques that demonstrated a reduction in inflammation in the coronary artery vessels in association with plaques that were marked by coronary artery calcium deposition. Uh, so this is a very important step, suggesting that it's really anti-inflammatory effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists that may be responsible for the cardiovascular benefit. But to remind ourselves about pioglitazone, it probably is associated with cardiovascular benefit. The IRIS study was in people with prediabetes, showing more clear benefits in the setting of stroke. Uh, the proactive study didn't meet the primary endpoint, but had a 16% reduction in the, the key secondary endpoint of three-point MACE. The concern around pioglitazone is weight gain, more issues with edema and bone fractures. Some people think that we could get by with lower doses with less adverse effects and perhaps the cardiovascular benefits, but it hasn't been specifically studied. But pretty clearly, pioglitazone is likely to have uh, uh, cardiovascular benefits. In the particular case, um, with the concern around weight, I do think that using a GLP-1 receptor agonist is indicated. And very importantly, you know, you want to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia in people with high-risk jobs uh, by discontinuing the sulfonylurea when you're using a drug that's going to be adequate to control uh, the hemoglobin A1C, like one of these uh, powerful GLP-1 receptor agonists. In this case, uh, the uh, focus is a bit more uh, tilted towards chronic kidney disease. And this patient is on an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, at the starting dose, which is the dose that's been studied uh, in heart failure and chronic kidney disease for the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, so the way I would think about it is the compelling need in the setting of chronic kidney disease with albuminuria. Um, has been uh, taken care of uh, with the SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, but in the setting where we need additional glycemic control, uh, we may want to consider using a GLP-1 receptor agonist in addition to the SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, so what is the evidence in that regard? Uh, first, just as a reminder, the SGLT2 inhibitors are powerful drugs for reducing the risk of hospitalization for heart failure and for improving uh, kidney outcomes. So we do not want to stop uh, the SGLT2 inhibitor in this patient. The GLP-1 receptor agonists have suggestions for benefit with regards to kidney outcome. When you look at the broad composite that includes albuminuria, a statistically significant 21% reduction. When we look at the narrower uh, endpoints that are really more about worsening of kidney function, like a 40% decline in EGFR as an example, there's a suggestion of benefit, 
uh, but it doesn't quite reach statistical significance. In the studies where GLP-1 receptor agonists have been added to SGLT2 inhibitors, very clear evidence of uh, substantial reductions in hemoglobin A1C, substantial reductions in weight, and substantial reductions in systolic blood pressure. So the standard things that we would want from a diabetes drug certainly is delivered in multiple studies. But very interestingly, in the Amplitude O study with a investigational GLP-1 receptor agonist, f paglenotide uh, they did have 15% of the patients that came into the study on a baseline SGLT2 inhibitor that were then randomized to F-paglenotide or placebo. And what you see is with regards to major adverse cardiovascular events, uh, there uh, is a hint that perhaps later on in the study, uh, perhaps additional benefit from F-paglenotide, but very importantly, we're not reducing the benefit uh, of the SGLT2 inhibitor with regards to cardiovascular outcomes. But with regards to the renal composite outcomes in patients that were on uh, baseline SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, there's a clear additional benefit of adding F-paglenotide. And with regards to heart failure hospitalization in patients that were on baseline SGLT2 inhibitor, a very clear benefit uh, with regards to reducing heart failure hospitalizations. So it's great that we now have some evidence from the cardiovascular outcome trials that adding GLP-1 receptor agonists to STLT2 inhibitors provides for meaningful benefits beyond A1C weight and blood pressure. This case actually really focuses on the challenges that patients have in managing weight. Whatever plan that people use, uh, lifestyle plan, uh, almost always will be successful, but eventually is limited by appetite. People just get hungry uh, as the body tries to defend against weight loss. The GLP-1 receptor agonists are uh, uh, great agents uh, in this setting, but we need to remember that GLP-1 receptor agonists have more heterogeneity within the class with regards to their efficacy on A1C and on weight. Uh, here is presented the data on the mean reduction in A1C from baseline after 24 weeks for a variety of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Uh, we see the greatest benefit uh, on the right uh, is uh, with uh, semaglutide one milligram once weekly. Um, there is the investigational dose of two milligrams once weekly currently uh, undergoing uh, review by the FDA. Um, and with regards to weight, the differences are arguably even bigger, uh, again, with semaglutide uh, having the best results with regards to mean weight reduction uh, over 24 weeks. So you might think about uh, semaglutide in this patient. Now, one of the issues with the GLP-1 receptor agonists is adherence. And there's a very nice study from Bill Polanski uh, published last year that looked at the factors that patients identified as being facilitators that, that, uh, that encourage them to continue uh, and the challenges that the discontinuers uh, uh, fat, felt. Uh, so with regards to the facilitators, it really was around improving numbers with regards to weight and glycemic effect and people who generally tolerated the drug well. On the other hand, the discontinuers, it was really around side effects and cost uh, as the major 
um, as the major issues. Um, so in talking to patients to improve their adherence, engaging in shared decision-making I think is really important. With regards to the GLP-1 receptor agonists, I think it's always important to discuss the advantages, which is really great efficacy for glycemia and often for weight and some blood pressure reduction. Talking about the compelling indications that really in the setting of prevalent atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or at high risk for cardiovascular disease, the potential to reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death, uh, et cetera, is very important. But we need to discuss the adverse events, the nausea and other GI adverse events. They generally occur early in the course. With time, they generally resolve, so we need to encourage people to try and stick it out so they get to those advantages and to really think about them in the context of the satiety promotion, that fundamentally what these drugs do is, uh, is cut your appetite. Um, so people should start, uh, uh, when they start with a GLP-1 receptor agonist, they need to eat smaller meals, um, to eat slowly uh, so that they recognize that they're not hungry anymore and can stop eating, or certainly recognize that they feel full. And when they feel full, that's kind of the, uh, the borderline of nausea with these GLP-1 receptor agonists. It's important to tell them what they're gonna read about and the me messages that they get from the pharmacy. Gallbladder events are a real problem. Acute kidney injury can be prevented by avoiding nausea and diarrhea promoting um, uh, dehydration. Pancreatitis is in the label, but wasn't really imbalanced in the large, long cardiovascular outcome trials. Um, but the important thing is if patients have persistent nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, they should hold the drug and seek medical attention if it doesn't resolve over a few hours or if uh, worrisome uh, symptoms are, pleasant, are present. There are contraindications around medullary thyroid cancer risk. Um, we always start with the lowest dose, titrate slowly, and back off for GI adverse effects. effects events. Uh, and then to think about the specific attributes of specific products. Uh, really focuses around the, uh, the issue of a patient on multiple agents at submaximum doses, issues with his insurance, and specific questions that he has uh, based on advertisements he's seen on television. Now, with regards to the first issue, the submaximum doses, as you go from uh, 1,500 milligrams to 2,500 uh, to almost 3,000 milligrams of metformin, uh, you don't really get a lot more A1C reduction. Same thing as you go from glimepiride, four milligrams to eight milligrams, not much benefit. Dulaglutide, you could go from 0.75 to 1.5 to 3 to 4.5, so you have a long way to go, and it would certainly provide greater benefit, but it's not covered for him anymore. It's such a common problem uh, that the, the coverage for individual patients shifts over time, and he's interested in oral semaglutide. So how do we think through all this? Well, there is a study from J Japan uh, that looked at the comparison of dilaglutide 0.75 milligrams. That's the, the usual dose in, in Japan versus oral semaglutide at 3, 7, or 14 milligrams. Uh, and what you can see is that semaglutide, particularly uh, 14 milligrams, would provide some additional benefit on A1C and certainly uh, benefits with regards to weight uh, across the board for uh, semaglutide. There are also real-world evidence in routine clinical practice about what happens when patients start 
uh, oral uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, specifically semaglutide, even though more than a third of the patients got stuck at that lowest dose of three milligrams of semaglutide, we really should titrate it up whenever uh, it's tolerated. We saw uh, important benefits on hemoglobin A1C over time, and very particularly in patients with a baseline A1C greater than 7%, uh, there was a uh, reduction uh, in, uh, in hemoglobin A1C of 1.1%. And on the far right, even in patients with prior GLP-1 receptor agonist use, there was an improvement in A1C of 0.6%. We will have a cardiovascular outcome trial with oral semaglutide. I'm one of the co-chairs of the steering committee. It's called SOL, where patients are randomized to oral semaglutide or matching placebo and followed uh, to their first MACE event, uh, heart attack, stroke, or cardiovascular death. Uh, we hope to have uh, results available uh, in 2024 in that regard. And how do you tell people about taking oral semaglutide? It's critically important that they take it on an empty stomach at least 30 minutes before first food or beverage or any oral medication of that day to take it with no more than four ounces of plain water, just a bit more than a, sw than a swallow, and to swallow the tablets whole. They should not cut, crush, or chew the tablets, and they have to wait at least 30 minutes to eat, drink, or take any other uh, medications. Now, they can wait more than 30 minutes, and that may increase the absorption. And that's a trick that I often suggest to patients, that if they have the leisure or if they happen to get up at 5 a.m. Uh, to use the bathroom, they can take this medicine and uh, go back to bed for, uh, for 30 minutes. And if they sleep for 60 minutes, they'll just get more absorption uh, of the drug. You always initiate three milligrams for at least 30 days. And then it's recommended to increase to seven milligrams and then 14 milligrams. I do think getting to the target dose of 14 milligrams uh, is important to get maximum benefit uh, in these patients. The important thing here is to really embrace the idea of engaging the patient in this discussion. Um, early intervention is a unique opportunity that can have lifelong uh, impact on outcomes. And ther therapeutic inertia is just getting kind of stuck medication persistence and adherence are really critical barriers to optimal outcomes. And often the insurance companies don't make it easier with their switching of what agent is covered. Um, again, always important to refocus on lifestyle. Uh, I mention it at every visit. Uh, it, it requires consistent personalized coaching. But really the essence of personalized care is the provider's personal touch and engagement. We call it empathetic patient-centered shared decision-making. And, you know, I boil it down to teaching and not preaching, to motivating and not castigating, and to remember that the everything else of medicine is essential. It's not just the prescriptions we write. It's our eye contact. It's our tone of voice. It's how you explain things to the patient. It's giving them hope. So this is an interesting scenario, a patient that was hospitalized uh, for a TIA um, and um, is a patient who during the hospital stay was started on basal bolus therapy, has been discharged uh, and is just fed up with all the glucose monitoring and all the, uh, the insulin injections uh, through the day. 
her A1C was a bit high on metformin monotherapy, and so you're trying to guide her around what the uh, approach is, and you agree that switching to a simpler uh, uh, regimen with metformin and a GLP-1 receptor agonist, uh, you know, seems like a sensible thing. Um, but what are you going to be able to tell her with regards to um, glucose monitoring, which she's not uh, happy with? Well, the first thing is um, I do think it's really important to remember that, you know, being started on insulin is not a dead end. In the old way of thinking about things, uh, we did sort of think that once you got on basal bolus insulin, you were done. That was your regimen for, for life. Now we encourage people to think about taking a U-turn, that you can go from basal bolus insulin to GLP-1 receptor agonist with basal insulin, or even getting people down to just you using oral agents. And with very intensive diet and exercise or bariatric surgery with lots of weight loss, sometimes we can get, even get back to diet and exercise. There are trials that have compared GLP-1 receptor agonists um, um, and uh, basal bolus insulin therapy. And basically uh, what's been shown is that they can provide similar levels of glycemic control GLP-1 receptor agonists, as opposed to SGLT2 inhibitors, reduce the insulin dose uh, a bit more on average. Um, and many patients can get down to uh, basal insulin and a GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, uh, as a combination therapy instead of basal bolus therapy with the same or improved glycemic control. With regards to the TIA, you know, I think a lot of patients there start focusing on the risk of future strokes. And we have evidence from uh, recent meta-analyses that if you look across the board uh, on the GLP-1 receptor agonist studies, there is a statistically significant reduction in the risk of stroke. So the various GLP-1 receptor agonists have uh, different uh, rhythms for how we take them daily, twice daily, weekly, um, and uh, different advantages and barriers with regards to how these uh, drugs uh, are administered. Uh, there is now an oral uh, formulation and helping the patient think through which one of these would actually meet her needs best is important. But remember in the context of where uh, the indication is for cardiovascular risk reduction. Adherence with GLP-1 receptor agonists is a problem um, in general, and I think some of it is related to changing insurance plans uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing and the expense of the agents. Uh, but one important uh, advance that has improved adherence is the once-weekly GLP-1 receptor agonist. And here, in real-world evidence compared to daily GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, you see a 15% or so bigger uh, persistence uh, on GLP-1 receptor agonists and an increase in the median stay time uh, to nearly one year. So with regards to blood glucose monitoring, continuous glucose monitoring, if a patient is using, uh, um, is not using agents that are associated with hypoglycemic risk like metformin and a GLP-1 receptor agonist, they don't need to routinely check blood sugars. 
they probably should have uh, uh, blood glucose monitoring available to, uh, to be able to self-monitor, just to know that they're on track from time to time. Uh, they don't have to do it every day to know that that's the case. And to check their blood sugar when they have symptoms to be able to reassure themselves it's not hypoglycemia or it's not related to hyperglycemia. And certainly not everybody needs to be on CGM. It's a tremendous advance for patients, uh, particularly on insulin therapy and as adjunct to understanding how diet really uh, impacts glycemic control. But not everybody needs to do it if they aren't inspired to do so. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AZF 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.